This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. So glad that you're here today. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and it is my privilege to guide us for the next 30 or 40 minutes as we continue to engage with God. And if we haven't met yet, I know I've met a few of you who came in for the first time today, and it was so fun to talk to you. But if we haven't met yet, and it's your first time or your second time, boy, I would love to meet you after service. So here's what I do. I run off the stage. I try to run around the building without getting too wet, and I try to catch you before you run out. But you could save me a lot of time if you just slowly made your way out. Because you matter. You matter to God. You matter to us at this church. You matter to me. I would love to meet you and hear your story about what brought you here, why you're here, how you engaged today, which I know is always a loaded question when the pastor asks you, how'd you like church? Like, what are you going to say? You know, it's like, it was really bad. So, but I really do. I want to meet you. I would love to hear your, your story because your story matters because you matter. And I believe that whether you have experienced this reality yet or not, I believe that God really wants to meet you here. Because God isn't, he's not some distant deity out there who wrote a list of rules in a book called the Bible and says, you better figure it out. He's a personal, powerful, loving, heavenly father who delights in meeting with his children. And he created you and he knows you and he believes in you and he has a plan for you. And not only do I want to meet you today, but boy, God wants to meet you here today in this space. And when you came in, you should have received a program and that gives you just a few tools to help you engage with God with us here today. The first is this card that says start here. I'd love everybody to go ahead and grab that, whether it's your first time or your hundredth time and just put your name on it. And if you're new with us, maybe your email address on it. This is simply a connection card. It's nothing magic. It just helps you stay connected to us, helps us stay connected to you. We want to give you full access to our pastoral team. We want to pray for you and support you in any way we can. This just helps us stay connected to you. So go ahead and get that filled out. And if I've earned your trust over the next 35 minutes or so, I'm just going to ask you to drop this in some baskets when they're passed a little later. The other thing you're going to want are our teaching notes. They've got the Bible verses we're looking at. They've got some fill in the blanks. They've got some questions just to be thinking about and some things to be pondering uh, as you go home today and this week. Because my hope would be that this would be the beginning of a conversation that would continue with your housemates, with your boyfriend or girlfriend, with your spouse, with your kids as you engage with God throughout this week. So go ahead and get that ready. And if you're brand new with us, we are in week two of a series that we're calling The Good Life. And this series comes out of Jesus' most famous teaching. It's a sermon that he called the Sermon on the Mount. He called it that because he went up onto a mountain when he gave it. There were a whole group of people who gathered around from all across the spectrum of life. Some non-religious, some very religious, some people who were professionally religious, uh, some non-professionals. And he saw this whole crowd gathered around him. And kind of like I'm up here now, he realized I need to get up somewhere so that I can communicate. So he went up on this hill or this mountain And he sat down and he began to teach and he taught what is captured in the pages of the Bible as the most famous sermon about how to experience a life where you are, you are, um, uniquely and authentically you, the you that you were created to be, the you that, that sometimes you're terrified might come out. He says that you is in there and there's a way to experience life where you are okay being you and you experience the fullness of who you were designed to be, where you're not trapped, but you're actually free. That's the kind of life that he talks about 
in this, uh, in this sermon. And so what we're going to do for the next eight weeks or so is we're just going to unpack the sermon. We're going to dig into it, and I'm trying to help us really dig into it to put ourselves there, to kind of close our eyes, picture the hill, smell the grass, and, and uh, hear the people, put ourselves back in these people's shoes. But a couple things you want to know about this message or this sermon that he preached, it's all about one key topic. And the topic is what he calls the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And we defined last week, this, this is our snapshot, that the kingdom of heaven is any place where God's presence and God's power are available. And Jesus says that God's presence and God's power are available to you all the time. That's where I'm saying God's not some distant, angry deity out there. He's, he's a personal, relational God, and he's here. His presence and power are available to us. And then Jesus goes on to say that those of us who live in this kingdom have two unique qualities about us. One is, if you experience the kingdom of God, if you're in a relationship with God, you are God's child. You're God's daughter or you're God's son. And that's an identity that can never be robbed from you. So whatever may come and go in life, the the ups and downs, uh, that one reality, that you're God's daughter God loves you, God sees you, God made you, and God doesn't make any junk. You're God's son. God's intensely proud to have you as his child. That can never be robbed from you. And the second reality is this. We live in God's kingdom, which is a place that can never be shaken. Jesus said it like this at the end of this message. Last week, we went to kind of the epilogue or the closing paragraph, if you remember, of Jesus' five-paragraph essay, where he said this, the rains may beat down on you, The floods may rise up. The winds may blow and beat against the walls of your house. But if you live in this kingdom, it's an unshakable place. So when the rains come down and the floods come up, you will not drown. And when the winds blow, they will not blow you over. That's the promise, is that we will experience tragedy, heartache, trials, temptations, and struggles in life. But experiencing life in the kingdom, he promises us, means that we don't have to be shaken by life's unexpected expectations. And so we're just exploring now, what does it look like to live in this kingdom? And we said living in this kingdom means that we're dual citizens. We're citizens of the United States, but we're also citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And when we enter into this new kingdom, it's like we enter into any new culture for the first time. We enter in as learners, where we're trying to understand the stories of the culture. We're trying to understand the uniqueness of it. I told you my story about going to India for the first time and trying to understand a very unique culture. Jesus says entering into the kingdom is not so much about what you do. That's religion. Religion talks all about what we do. Living in the kingdom is about the stories that go underneath what we do, the why stories. Why why does God design life? How is life designed to work? What are the stories that go underneath the what? Because when we understand the why, the what tends to work itself out. What should I do about work? What should I do about this relationship? What should I do when I feel lost or when, when, tru- when troubles hit? If we understand the whys of the kingdom, the what will play itself out. And so Jesus spends a lot of time telling stories, rewriting narratives, helping us go just one level deeper than what should I do to why would I want to do it and what's it mean for the kingdom of God. And today, it's so interesting. We're just going to take this as it comes in the sermon that Jesus preached. And I was hoping he'd kind of softball into it and give us some easy things to talk about. But you know the first thing he hits? Anger. Anger. He he talks about this kingdom and how great it is and how much you'll love living in it. And then he says, let me rewrite some of those stories about anger. 
So I want to I dive into that today, but I want to do it from a little bit of a different perspective. Because anger, as you see in the title of this message, uh, anger is a good emotion. It's a good emotion that has mixed results. Oftentimes bad results. And we assume that because it has bad results in our relationships, anger is bad. But it's actually, it's not bad in and of itself. Anger is actually just a signpost that something is wrong. That's why Paul, who was a very emotive guy, he wrote the majority of the New Testament, had strong emotions. Paul wrote this in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 26. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, because if you do, you'll give the devil a foothold. What he's implying is this, that there's a difference between anger and sin. And by sin, we're talking about those destructive patterns that hurt us and that separate us from other people, and that ultimately, if there is a perfect God, sin is the thing that keeps us from that perfect God. And he says, you can actually be angry, and in your anger, not sin, which would let us know that it's not a bad emotion. It's simply an emotion that points to the fact that something is not quite right, and that something could be all sorts of different things. For example, You and I probably get angry when we hear about sex slavery happening, both abroad and in our country. I know that my wife and I were looking at this a lot as the Super Bowl came to town because the Super Bowl is one of the the highest days where sex trafficking happens. And it, it makes us angry. Why? Because that is an injustice that should never happen. And in that case, anger is a good emotion, pointing us to the fact that this should not be in God's world. So anger can be a good emotion. It might be pointing to injustice, but it could also be pointing to insecurity. Someone points something out and you and I feel angry because they point out something that makes us feel insecure about ourselves. Sometimes we get angry because we feel unloved or unlovable and it comes out as anger. Have you ever noticed that? And, and I know this is true for guys, but it might be true for women as well. I don't know for sure because I don't happen to be one. Um, but for guys, here's what we usually say. I'm angry. Why are you angry? Because I'm pissed. Okay, that's the same as angry. Um, That doesn't actually... Why are you? Why are you that? Because I am. Because I'm so mad. What are we saying? We're saying, I have no idea why I'm angry. I'm just angry. There's an emotion that points to something. I could be feeling unloved, unlovable, judged. I could have had a bad day at work. And now I'm angry at home. It's leaking out on you. It could be that my blood sugar is low and and I'm what we like to call hangry, right? I'm hangry. I had a roommate like that in college. He said, don't talk to me until I get some food in my stomach when I get home. And so when he got engaged, his fiance was so smart. She started packing him trail mix and leaving it in his car. She said, eat this before you walk in the door. Because he was hangry all the time. And because anger is a signpost to something, but it could point to a hundred different things, because of that reality, it's hard to pin anger down, isn't it? to figure out why I'm actually feeling what I'm feeling. That's why I say it's a mixed emotion. It's a good emotion with some very bad outcomes. Some of my worst regrets, and I don't know about you, but I would guess we're not that different. Some of my worst regrets come from me not knowing why I was angry and just lashing out in my anger. Some of my worst regrets in my marriage, in my parenting, with friendships, in ministry— come from a lack of knowing where that anger is coming from. What's going on in here that's causing me to lash out there? That's why anger, 
in and of itself is not bad, and yet it terrifies us. It feels like a sleeping dragon just waiting to come out. So Jesus, he wants to get to the heart of anger. Where does it come from? Why do we have it? And then once we understand the realities of living in the kingdom as relates to anger, he says, and this is how you can deal with it and get the good out of anger while eliminating the bad, the destructive, the hurtful, the sinful anger. And this is what he says. And I'm telling you, Jesus, he doesn't pull any punches. He goes straight to the extreme. Check this out. He says this. You've heard that it's said of the people long ago, you shall not commit murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And when he says long ago, he's referring to the Old Testament book of the Bible, some laws, specifically in Exodus um, chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, which doesn't matter unless you want to go look up some old laws, in which case, go ahead and write that down. You'll feel smart for doing it. The context is this. The Israelites had left slavery in Egypt. They were slaves for 400 years. They had left slavery after 400 years, and they were becoming a nation for the first time. And part of becoming a nation meant that they had to learn some civil laws to learn how to act as a nation. It was not unlike our founding fathers had to do with the original 13 colonies. We are now free. We need to figure out how to be a nation. And so they had these civil laws, laws that said things like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you shed blood, your blood should be shed. They were, they were civil laws to make it a civil society. But Jesus knows that laws, while they might prevent us from things like murder— will not actually hit the heart of what's going on in our lives. He says, yeah, you might not commit murder, but if you're trapped with anger that's just bubbling up inside of you, you're ultimately not free. So he goes on to say this. You've heard it said, anyone who commits murder is subject to judgment, verse 22, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which means like, empty-headed, or you idiot. Hey, idiot. Anyone who says that is liable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool. Some of you probably said that to your spouse this morning. Careful. (laughs) Well, get this. We'll be in danger of the fire of hell. (whistles) Come on. That seems a little extreme. That word hell is this, is this word Gehenna, which is actually a literal place when Jesus lived. If you go to Jerusalem, you can actually see Gehenna. It's, it's this valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Old Testament, there was this prophet. His name was Jeremiah, and it was the low point of Jewish history. So if you're new to Christianity, the Old Testament tells the story of the Jewish people, this nation that was kind of uniquely God's people, and it walks them through their story of engaging with God And at a certain point in the Old Testament, they have this this prophet, this religious leader named Jeremiah, at a low point in the people's story, where they turned from the God of the Bible. They were worshiping these other gods. One of the gods they worshiped was, was a metal, kind of a metal figure of a person with a cow's head. Its name was Molech. It was the god of the underworld. So if you can imagine, he would sit like this, and he had his hands like this with a human body, and then the head of like a cow with big horns coming out of it. And at this particular point in Jewish history, in this valley, the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, it's come to be called hell. In this valley, there was this huge statue of Molech with his hands out like this. He was a metal object, and he had bull's horns. And the way they worshipped this god of the underworld was that they would take their infants, and they would heat up the metal body, and they would place their infants in the hands of Molech. 
And then they had a lever system that would pull the infants into Molech's mouth. And they would sacrifice their children to this god of the underworld in this valley, the Valley of Hinnom. And it became known as the place where God's presence and God's power was completely absent. It became known as hell. It broke Jesus' heart what happened in that valley. That's why he sent Jeremiah to tell the people, stop doing this. This is wrong. All human life matters. From conception through death, human life matters. Don't do that anymore. Come Jesus' day, this valley became a trash dump where human excrement would be dropped, where garbage would be left. This was the valley of Hinnom. And Jesus says, do you want to know what hell is like? Hell is like that valley over there. You know that valley on the edge of Jerusalem where the babies were sacrificed that's full of human excrement and waste? That's what hell is going to be like. We talked last week about the fact that hell is anywhere where God's presence is absent. Just like the kingdom of heaven is anywhere where God's presence and power is present. And then you have to stop and ask yourself the question, why would Jesus say if you call someone a fool, you're liable to go there? That seems a little extreme, doesn't it? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying... The issue with anger is not just what comes out of our mouth. So we can't fix it by just saying, I'm going to stop exploding at my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my kids or my coworkers or my employees. That won't fix it. He's saying, because even if you could stop doing that, if your filters were better than most of ours, if the, the sieve on your mouth was better, if you have anger in your heart, Jesus says, then you're actually trapping yourself in your own little version of hell. Because anytime you experience anger building up inside of you, whether it comes out or just stays inside, that anger is trapping you. It's keeping you from freedom. And God's great desire for us is that we would all experience freedom in every area of our lives. And the more it builds, the more it builds, it's like a pressure release that will just come spewing out at some point. And he says, when you're experiencing that anger internally, in that moment, you are missing the power and presence of God. It's like you're trapping yourself in Gehenna, in your own little hell. And God is like a good father who doesn't want his kids trapped in their own personal hell any longer. So he gets to the heart of the issue. Religion deals with the what Remember, the what? Don't yell. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. But in the kingdom, Jesus is more interested in rewriting the narratives, the stories that go below, that answer the question, why do I find myself trapped in anger all the time? So we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to jump into why. Why does anger seem to bubble up? What is it that causes anger inside of us? before we can get to the solution of how do we actually deal with it. The solution is the what. But again, the what without the why won't actually bring freedom. It might help us to trap our words a little more carefully. But it will not make us free to experience the life we were created to live. 
And anger generally bubbles up with two main ingredients. You put these two ingredients into your body, into your life, into your mind, and anger is usually the byproduct. The first ingredient is this, unmet expectations. Anytime we have unmet expectations, anger starts to bubble up. Last week, I was running late to come to work. My little man, Landon, is five years old. He had this plastic slinky that he got from preschool. It was like a dollar store toy. Grandparents, listen to me, please, for a second. Please do not take our kids to the dollar store. They love you because the toys are great for about 10 hours. They break the minute we get home, and then our kids are horrible. They're horrible. They have a hard time. So grandparents, buy the good stuff for the kids. (laughs) This wasn't my grandparents, but in case my parents are listening, just buy the good stuff. Anyway, it was a dollar store slinky. You know the kind about this big, right? And Landon keeps taking it and twisting it. I said, dude, don't do that. It's going to break. He kept on doing it. Don't do that. It's going to break. I get in the shower. I get out. I'm getting dressed. He comes in, big alligator tears. Daddy, my slinky broke. You know what I didn't feel in that moment? I didn't feel deep compassion for my five-year-olds. I didn't. You know what I felt? felt anger. Anger. Why? I had an expectation that he would listen to me and stop twisting his slinky. Unmet expectations. Anger begins to bubble. I had more unmet expectations. He was throwing a fit. I have an expectation that my children will learn how to process their emotions without throwing a fit. Unmet expectations. Lack of compassion. Anger bubbling up. And the third one was this. I had the expectation that I would get to work on time that day. Come on, parents. How much, how angry do we get in the last 10 minutes before it's time to leave the house? Because we have an expectation that we will make it to work on time. But you don't have to be a parent. If you live with anyone else and they start to get in your way in that last five minutes, it's like, get out of my way. I got to get to work. So these unmet expectations are bubbling up. Anger starts to build. But it happens all over the place. Let's talk parents for a second. Parents, did you know that we have, um, we have an acceptable threshold of disobedience that we allow our kids to have? Did you know that? It's subconscious for most of us. We don't actually know where it is. All we know is they can go this far and no farther. When they go this far, we're like Gandalf, you shall not pass, and we like slam it down. And our kids have no idea where that line is because we don't know where it is. So they push and push and push, and then they get here, and we get angry. Why? Because we have an expectation that they will not cross wherever here is. And when they cross that over, it's an unmet expectation, and we're angry at them, and we're angry at ourselves because an expectation is not being met. How about this? At work, it's Friday afternoon. Just put yourself back here. Friday afternoon, 4.50, you get off work at 5. Your boss comes in and says, hey, we've got this project. We just need to get it done. It's only going to take an hour. Unmet expectations. Your expectation? I'm leaving work in 10 minutes. You probably think I'm leaving work in about two minutes if no one's looking. <laughs> it's the weekend. I, got, I want to get home so I can get ready for church on Sunday. That's what you're thinking on Friday afternoon. I know you. And your boss comes in and says, we just need an extra hour. An hour in the grand scheme of things is not a huge deal. But why do we get angry on Friday afternoon? Unmet expectations. That's the first ingredient that causes anger to bubble up. The second one is fear. Fear. Here was my fear. My fear was that I wouldn't get my work done for the day. I was already running behind. It was Wednesday. I still had work that I had to do from Monday. 
I had to get out of the house. I was afraid that I would not get my work done. The unmet expectations combined with the fear caused anger, caused a slinky to go into a trash can and compassion to not flow freely from your pastor to his son. Now, about 45 seconds in, the Holy Spirit said, hey, he's five. He's five. So while he might not get that slinky back, this is not the way to respond to a five-year-old. You have 30 years on him. And so I pulled the slinky out. He still had his consequence for the choices he was making, but I was able to do it with his best interest in mind because I realized that I was just dealing with my own junk, unmet expectations and fear. Parents, do you know why we get so angry when our kids cross that invisible line? Because we're terrified. We're terrified that we've let them go too far and we can't get control back of our house. We're terrified that we're bad parents and we've done irreparable damage to our children. Um, We're terrified that we haven't started saving for counseling early enough and it's going to put them (laughs) in debt later. Unmet expectations and fear turn into this rage storm inside of us. Even if it never comes out, it's bubbling up. How about work? Here's our fear at work at 450 when our boss says we need an extra hour of work. If I don't do this, is my boss going to think less of me? If I don't do this, am I going to get fired? How about this one? If I stay for an extra hour, what is my spouse, what are my kids going to think at home? Because now they have unmet expectations that mom or dad is going to be home, and now I'm here for an extra hour. So now they're getting angry, and I'm going to have to deal with their anger, and now I'm angry on behalf of the fact that I'm scared of my spouse at home. Come on. And this is this cycle that goes on inside of us, and we don't even know it. That's why we say, I'm just angry. Why are you angry? Because I had these expectations, and they're not being met, and I've got this fear that is building inside of me. I don't know what to do with it. When unmet expectations and fear combined, here's what they do. They leave us feeling out of control. And when we feel out of control, anger seems like the natural and logical next step to take control back. That's why when we get angry, we power up. When we get angry, adrenaline starts to course through our bodies. That's why you feel like the Incredible Hulk when you're angry. Because the world tells us certain narratives, certain stories about how to get control. The world says something like this. The only way to get control back is to take control by force. That's how you get control back. You feel out of control. You feel weak. Take control back. Get loud. Puff up. Get big. Get angry. And we've all tried it, haven't we? When we feel out of control, we've tried getting angry. We've tried puffing up. We've tried getting bigger. And it does not lead to freedom, interestingly enough. Personal freedom, because then we're trapped in our own little hell. It doesn't lead to relational freedom, because then we have to go back and apologize to the person that we blew up at later. It usually comes in one of two forms, fight or flight. Fight is that explosion of anger. Flight is, is the running away, is the I'm just going to shut down, I'm going to close down, but I'm going to hold on to anger inside. And each of these is equally destructive to us. Because anytime we're harboring anger, we are not experiencing God. We're not experiencing life in his kingdom. And ultimately, we are trapping ourselves in hell. That's why Jesus can say, if you look at someone and you think you're an idiot, 
you're a fool. They're so dumb. How could they do that? Even if you don't say it and they don't know it, which by the way, they almost always know it because they can see it in your eyes. You're trapping yourself, Jesus says, in your own little Gehenna, in your own little hell. So what's Jesus' narrative about anger in the kingdom? Here's his narrative. It goes something like this. In the kingdom of heaven, you are never alone. Matthew 28, verse 20, is where Jesus says to us as his followers, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. You are never alone when you live in the kingdom. You're never alone. And Jesus says, I can transform your unmet expectations into opportunities for good. I love Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. It does not say that God causes all things. In fact, we're told that God is the giver of good gifts, who showers down good gifts on his children. Some of your worst tragedies, I think we're tempted to blame God when tragedy strikes. Instead of running to God, we end up running from God. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about in Romans. What he says is that God can work all things for good. He can take every unmet expectation, every hurt, every fear, every time you feel out of control, and he can somehow, in God's beautiful, powerful way, weave it back together for something good. That's the kind of work that he can do. We're never alone. And God can take all of our unmet expectations, which causes the fear to bubble up, which causes the anxiety to come, and transform them and turn them into good. And you might be thinking right now, well, that is really interesting stuff. I hadn't really thought about that. But what do I do with it? Like, how do I practically act on this to find freedom from anger? That's a, that is a fair question. And God actually has an answer for it. There's a guy named James who was the half-brother of Jesus, which, by the way, if you're here and you're wondering, was Jesus really God? Was he really God? I want to ask you this. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God in the flesh? What would it take for you? Because James was Jesus' brother. They grew up together. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God in the flesh? You know what it took for James? It took him seeing his brother die and raise again pretty convincing. Although some of you are thinking, even if my brother rose from the dead, I'd still have questions. (laughs) But James was skeptical about Jesus. He was. But then Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrated that on Easter. And when he rose from the dead, he interacted with James. And James thought, he is the Son of God. Became a a follower of Jesus, a, a Christian, a Christ follower. Became a leader in the early church. And he wrote this letter that we know as the book of James. It's just a letter written by James. They thought, what should we call it? Well, James wrote it. Let's just call it the book of James. So in the book of James chapter 1, verse 19, he actually lays out the practical steps for finding freedom from anger. Now, again, these only lead to freedom to the extent that we rewrite our narratives about God, that we're never alone, that God can take our unmet expectations and actually turn them for good. But here's what he says to, his, to other people who live in this kingdom, other Jesus followers. Dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Every one of you should be, and he gives us three things. Quick to listen. You might want to underline that. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Now, don't get those backwards. Not slow to listen. Quick to to speak. Quick to become angry. 
quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger, remember what we talked about, anger is not in and of itself a bad emotion, but it can lead to mixed results. Human anger, that getting angry, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. Underline that last part, the word planted in you, which can save you. James actually does this in reverse order. He says the why, and then he says the what. Or actually, he says the what, and then the why. So we're going to take it in reverse order, starting with verse 21. He says, humbly accept the word planted in you. What's the word planted in you? It's the reality that you're a son and a daughter of God, that you live in the kingdom, a kingdom that's unshakable, that can never be taken from you, that you're never alone, that God can actually rewrite some of those moments that you feel out of control and turn them into good. That's the word implanted in you, that you've been saved by God, that you, have found, you can find freedom in God, that his presence is available to you. He says, because of that, he goes up to verse 19. He says, here's what you can do when that anger begins to bubble up. First, be quick to listen. Second, be slow to speak. How many times have you said something and the minute it came out of your mouth, you thought, I wish I could suck it back in. You're like, but it's gone. It's just out there. He says, once it goes out there, you're on damage control. You have no time to process because now you're into a whole nother mess, a whole nother level. So he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, because the minute it's out there, it's out there, and slow to become angry. So when unmet expectations and fear collide, internally, here's what we need to do. We need to tell ourselves, be slow to speak, be slow to speak. And then we need to ask four questions. The first is this. What am I believing about God right now? More often than not, here's the answer that we'll find when anger is bubbling up. I believe that God has left the building. I believe that I'm on my own. I believe that no one cares about me, including God, and I better fight or I better run. Because if there's no one here to protect me, it's my job to protect myself. What am I believing about God right now. Here's what I say. God, I need to know you're here with me. When I get angry, I get slow to speak in my best moments. Slow to speak. Say, God, where are you? Where are you? I need to know you're here, that I'm not alone. So that's the first question. The second question is this. What am I believing about myself right now? Again, this will help you, especially if you're one of these folks who says, I'm just angry. Why are you angry? Because I'm mad. Why are you mad? Because I'm so angry. This will help you. What am I believing about myself? Could be that I'm believing that I am being unjustly accused right now. This is not right. You are painting a bad picture of me. Could be that I'm believing you're taking advantage of me, and that's making me angry. Could be that you're believing this is my fault. How many times have you been in a fight with someone and you thought to yourself, this is all my fault, but how do I get out of this cycle? It just keeps getting worse and worse. Could you imagine if you said in the middle of that, you know what, I just feel like this is all my fault. I'd like to apologize. Boy, that fight would take a very different turn at that point. But we don't do that, do we? We puff up. And then hours later, we come back groveling with flowers and say, honey, I'm sorry, that was all my fault. Because we were quick to speak instead of being slow to speak and quick to listen. What am I believing about myself? Maybe what we believe in those moments is I'm in danger. I'm in danger of being fired. That could cause some anger to start to bubble up. I'm in danger of being misunderstood. 
I'm in danger of being hurt right now by someone who I thought believed in me. I'm in danger of being found out as the fraud that I actually believe I am. Remember, anger's a signpost to something. The third question is, or the fourth question is this, and it kind of goes to the same idea. What am I really feeling? Anger is what we call a secondary emotion. It comes up because of something. That's why when I say, why are you angry? If the answer is because I'm mad, we're missing it. That's a secondary. Why am I really angry? What am I feeling right now? What am I really feeling? Hurt, scared, sad, hungry, tired, vulnerable, misunderstood. If we can figure out what we're really feeling, it'll go a long way because then we can talk about what's actually going on instead of puffing up to protect the more we understand our place in the kingdom of God, that we're safe, that you're actually safe, even in those uncertain moments. You're safe because you're God's daughter and you're God's son, because you live in the unshakable kingdom of God, and because even though there are unmet expectations happening, God is ultimately in control of the big picture, and he will ultimately protect you. You are safe in the kingdom of God. And the more we understand that we're safe in the kingdom, it gives us space to slow down and start to ask those four questions. And some of us are sitting here thinking, that would take forever. You really want me to ask those questions every time I get mad? That'll take a long time. I'll be honest, I've been working through this process for 10 to 12 years. And at first, it did take quite a while. It meant saying things like, you know what, I need about five minutes to go figure out what's going on so that I could be slow to speak and slow to become angry. But over time, that becomes more natural. I start to ask these questions intuitively. What am I feeling? God, where are you? What's going on? And over time, it becomes like second nature. And then we can actually talk about what's going on as opposed to dealing with the fractured relationships that almost always come when anger explodes. God designed us to live in freedom. Sermon on the Mount is all about experiencing the good life. And a life that's trapped by anger is a life that's lived in its own little hell. So Jesus says, when anger has you, even if it's just in here, if no one else even knows, when it's in here, you're trapping yourself. And Jesus says, I want you to have freedom. And how do we find freedom? It's found in the kingdom. Knowing that you're God's child. Knowing that you're safe. And that nothing can ultimately shake or rattle the kingdom of God. So the question for some of us is probably, well, how do I get into the kingdom? That sounds pretty darn good. Here's how you get into the kingdom. You enter into a relationship with God, a personal relationship with him, where you say, yes, God, I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. I want to live with you. And in the context of that relationship, God fills us with his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God living inside of us, which helps us to do this internal work that God desired for us to do. In fact, Jesus says the Holy Spirit leads us to the truth. How am I really feeling? What's going on? The Holy Spirit leads us to truth and then gives us the power to do the truth that he leads us to. How do we experience that? We enter into a relationship with him. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that, to pray right now, to enter into a personal relationship with God, to experience his forgiveness, his grace, and his power for life in the kingdom. And if you're ready to make that decision, you can, you can repeat this prayer after me. Let's close our eyes and let's pray together. If you're ready to enter into this relationship with God, to live in the kingdom, to start this journey with him, to experience his forgiveness, his love, and his partnership, you can repeat these simple words. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me, 
and that you gave your life to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you forgive me, God, of my sin? Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you show me what it looks like to walk in the kingdom of heaven every day from this day forward, even as I pass into eternity? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.